Thanks for listening to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Bridgeway, visit our website at bridgeway.cc. To watch this and all of our sermons, visit our YouTube page and be sure to subscribe while you're there. For sermon notes, click the link in the description. Today, Associate Pastor Scott Garber concludes his series on forgiveness with a message on the importance of compensating for wrongs we've committed and having what he calls a Zacchaeus moment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's sermon. Good morning, Bridgeway. Thank you for joining us for worship, and now I hope you're ready to dive into God's Word. My name is Scott Garber. I'm a pastor at large here at Bridgeway Community Church. We're still praying for our senior pastor, Dr. David Anderson, who's enjoying some well-deserved rest and rejuvenation this summer, and we're looking forward to seeing him back soon. So as we embark on this second um, installment of our mini-series, Beyond Apologies, let's dedicate this time to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for being here with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us insight into your word and who helps us to become not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray for our senior pastor that you'll be with him and his family during this time when he's away. Bring him back refreshed and with new vision for this coming year. And Lord, renew our vision today as we gather around your word in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid in Sunday school, which was back in the Paleozoic era, we used to sing a, a, a little song about one of my favorite Bible characters, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, it was a catchy little song with some really cool hand motions and everything. In fact, I still remember the lyrics to the Zacchaeus song. But no, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning because, well, in retrospect, it just seems a little bit overly obsessed with the idea that Zacchaeus was, and I quote, a wee little man. Now, it's true that Zacchaeus was shorter than average, but no man I know would ever want to be referred to, even posthumously, as a wee little man. So I'm not going to do that to my buddy Zacchaeus, who actually stands pretty tall in this story as the hero of his own tale. Fact is, in my Sunday school, Zacchaeus was what you'd call a flannel graph favorite. Oh, yeah. And if you don't know flannel graph, then you just haven't been around long enough. Flannel graph, you see, was a board covered with, well, flannel, and sometimes it, it was imprinted with the background of a Bible scene. It sat on an easel, and each story had a set of colorful cutout characters that uh, were made of heavy-duty paper. They had a backing of, well, maybe felt or sandpaper that would adhere to the flannel when you pressed on it. So the teacher could move the characters around and tell the story. And as kids, ooh, we were simply spellbound by this technology. So, yeah, those were simpler times. But in recent years, I've become fascinated with Zacchaeus all over again, but for somewhat different reasons this time. Because Zacchaeus has so much to teach us about the nexus between spirituality and interpersonal justice. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we're engaged in a two-week series called Beyond Apologies. In the first installment, which was called Addressing Offenses, Beyond Apologies, Addressing Offenses, we talked about how adding confession and repentance to our apologies can help us to get from wherever we are all the way to reconciliation. 
But you know, there are other circumstances in which even when we confess what we've done and even when we demonstrate a commitment to change behavior, that's still not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to satisfy God. It's not going to be enough to bring about relational healing. And so that's why this week we're doing part two, Beyond Apologies, Redressing Offenses. Now before we get too far down down the pathway here on redress, we need to take a time out to talk about something far more basic, like what in the world do we mean by redress? It's not exactly a common term, and even if you're familiar with it, you might have heard it in a somewhat different context. So let me take just a moment to talk about what, how I'm using the term redress today. Of course, redress has nothing whatsoever to do with a change of clothing Redress is simply bringing justice to bear on injustice by some sort of compensatory mechanism. In other words, if in the course of our relationship, one of us took something from the other one or caused the other person to suffer some form of loss, redress tries to set that thing right by compensating for it. Now, you may have heard about people seeking redress or demanding redress for some grievance because they believe that, well, perhaps another person or a company or even a government has somehow unjustly disadvantaged them. And as a matter of fact, that's the most common use of the term. And you might not know that that usage is actually even enshrined in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That's right, tucked right in there alongside freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of peaceful assembly is the right to, and I quote, petition the government for redress of grievances. Now in real life, people seek redress for all sorts of grievances, from the neighbor's dog digging holes in their yard to international genocide. But today we're not talking about seeking or demanding redress Rather, we're focusing on providing redress, as in voluntarily. Not because it's demanded by the offended, not because it's ordered by the court, not because it's imposed on us by some sort of peer pressure, but rather first because it's right, and second because sometimes it's the only road from where we are to reconciliation. If you're a student of Scripture, you might be more familiar with the concept of restitution than that of redress. The problem is that for many of us, restitution kind of feels simply like giving back the exact material item that was taken, or perhaps its financial equivalent. And we tend to think of restitution as operating primarily between individuals. Redress, on the other hand, we might say is a bit more comprehensive. It may involve either individuals or groups of people. It might include compensation for non-material losses. Redress might end up being either more or less than the amount of the original injustice, depending on the circumstances. And redress might apply to broad injustices rather than just particular offenses. Now, we could do a case-by-case study of all the Bible passages that deal with various forms of redress. But I'm thinking that it might be a whole lot more interesting to just start with a story. And the story I have in mind is the story of our buddy Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. So you may want to accompany me there. If you don't have a personal copy of Scripture handy, don't worry. We'll try to get the relevant portions projected on the screen 
as we go along. So we're going to start by reading this story from Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. It goes like this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they being the crowd, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I give half of, my, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." So let's set the physical and cultural stage for this powerful narrative of Zacchaeus. By the time we get to chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, Jesus is already a well-known preacher and miracle worker. In fact, this incident takes place not long before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which began the week before his crucifixion and his passion. Jericho which is the town in which this takes place, was a very special city. Even today it claims the title of lowest city on earth because it's situated at some 800 feet below sea level. It was a beautiful and wealthy city, maybe like the Palm Springs of its time, except that it was also a thriving commercial center and it was situated at the crossroads of some important trade routes. This city was such a gem that some 60 years earlier, Mark Antony had gifted it to his main squeeze, Cleopatra. Now, in this lovely city lived a not-so-lovely man by the name of Zacchaeus. And as we read, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which is never going to win you any popularity contests. But back then, tax collectors were not bureaucrats, but entrepreneurs and actually traitors, in this case, to their own people because he collected taxes for Rome from the Jewish people. So Zacchaeus had a contract with the Roman government to collect taxes. But nobody else knew what that agreement said. So the tax bill ended up being whatever the tax man said it was. Some of that went to Rome, and the rest went into his pocket. So as you can imagine, tax collecting was a lucrative business. And according to verse 2, Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, So he probably got a cut of all the money being skimmed by all the other tax collectors in the area. It's like a giant pyramid scheme working for this guy. As a result, Mr. Zacchaeus was very wealthy, but not very well liked. I bet they even called him a wee little man behind his back. Maybe even worse. You want to know how popular this guy was? Think Ebenezer Scrooge played by Danny DeVito, okay? 
Now, we're not told why Zacchaeus is so determined to see this folk preacher phenomenon by the name of Jesus. Maybe he's heard the buzz about how Jesus healed a blind beggar named Bartimaeus on his way into Jericho. Maybe he's heard that Jesus has a soft spot for guys like him. Maybe he's heard about a former tax collector named Matthew who's now one of Jesus' disciples. Well, the crowd that was lining Jesus' route must have been considerable because the short Zacchaeus couldn't even find a shoulder to look over or a gap to peer through. So he boogied on ahead, and of all things, he climbed up in a tree. I say of all things because, well, you don't usually see rich people climbing trees, especially to get a good view because rich people usually have a front row seat. But anyway, there he was, and now the plot thickens. Because not only does Zacchaeus see Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus sees him. And not just because Zacchaeus looked dumb up there in that tree, though maybe he did. I think Jesus saw him because he was looking for him. Jesus tells Zacchaeus to get down because Jesus must, it says, must go to his house. That could also be translated, it's necessary for me to go to your house today. So going to Zacchaeus' house is part of the plan that Jesus already has in mind. He knows who Zacchaeus is. He calls him by name. And Jesus doesn't even wait for an invitation. He just invites himself and tells Zacchaeus what to do. Let me just say before we continue this story that Jesus is looking for you too. Whether you're rich or poor, famous or infamous, you're on his radar. He's already looking for you just like he was already looking for Zacchaeus. And when you show an interest in getting to know him too, as Zacchaeus did, he's going to respond by taking your relationship to the next level, which is exactly what happened here. Well, old Zacchaeus practically falls out of the tree in his haste to welcome his self-invited guest. But the rest of the people, eh, they're not quite so enthusiastic about this arrangement. A moment earlier, they'd been thinking, hey, maybe this guy is the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. But now he's ditching the adoring crowd to go hang out with the most unholy guy in town. And remember, in that culture, to accept an invitation to someone's home, much less to invite yourself, is, and to break bread with that person, that was a social statement of acceptance. So this whole scene was downright scandalous on a whole bunch of levels. But now take a look at verse 8. And depending on which Bible translation you're using, it may say that Zacchaeus stood or stood up or stopped or stood there. The Greek word in question could legitimately be translated in any one of these ways. So we're not exactly sure whether they're still in front of the crowd or on their way to Zacchaeus' house or if they're already in Zacchaeus' house. But even if the scene has jumped ahead to the home of Zacchaeus, this meal that they're sharing would not have been the strictly private affair that we might imagine today. You see, in that day and climate, of course, there, were no, there was no glass in the windows. The windows just opened up to the outdoors. So when an important teacher like Jesus came to visit and shared a meal, often a large crowd would gather outside to listen in to the proceedings. So regardless where the conversation took place, 
It wasn't just for the sake of Jesus and Zacchaeus. It was also for the sake of the other people around. But the key thing about verse 8 are the two commitments that Zacchaeus makes here. Both commitments relate to our theme of redress. But as you'll see, they target two different groups of people. In order to understand what's going on here, let's jump ahead to Jesus' explanation in verses 9 and 10 and then work backwards. Whatever Zacchaeus said in verse 8 leads Jesus to conclude that today salvation has come to this house. In other words, his host has just experienced a genuine conversion. But what tipped Jesus off? What did Zacchaeus say? Did he say he'd put his faith in Christ or prayed the sinner's prayer or decided to follow Jesus? Well, not exactly. Actually, Zacchaeus is talking about money, specifically about giving it away. But Jesus understands that when somebody like Zacchaeus starts parting with his money, well, that change must have come from the inside out. Look at the end of verse 8. What does Zacchaeus promise to do here? He's going to pay back every penny he swindled from people, right? Well, yes and no, because he's not just returning his ill-gotten gain. He's going to give back four times the amount he took. Dang. Notice he says, if I have cheated anyone. But that if phrase doesn't give him an escape hatch. Because the Greek grammar here indicates that the if I have cheated clause is assumed to be true. So there's no real contingency here, both because of the grammar and because everybody, including Zacchaeus, knew that cheating was his business model. So under Old Testament law, the amount of restitution that was due in a given circumstance could vary quite a bit. And we're not going to get way down into the weeds here, but sometimes all that, was, all that was required was just the simple return of whatever was stolen, or perhaps it's cash equivalent if that thing wasn't available. Sometimes they had to give back an additional 20%, sometimes more. But in this case, Zacchaeus probably wouldn't have been obligated by the law to return any more than double. Still, it's not clear that, that, that Zacchaeus even knew or cared about his actual legal obligation. He's just making an over-the-top gesture out of a transformed heart. Now, why would he pay back more than he owes? Well, on the one hand, to demonstrate the extent of his repentance before God. But on the other hand, he'd do that to satisfy the people he cheated. And for that, a windfall tax rebate of four times the amount you paid, well, I don't know, that kind of sounds like a plan. He's not, see, he's not trying to just right the wrong. He's trying to right the relationship as well. And that's the power of redress. But Zacchaeus isn't done. No, no. Look at the beginning of verse 8. In addition to the fourfold reimbursement, this dude is going to give half of his possessions to the poor. Now, even if you're rich, you're going to feel 50%. I'm just saying. But note, and this is really important, that this is not a particular debt that he owes to anyone because of a personal offense. 
He's taken care of that with the redress we already talked about in the latter part of the verse. This is for the poor in general. So it appears that Zacchaeus is recognizing some structural inequities in his society. And as one of those people who has benefited from that unjust arrangement, he's trying to bring a measure of justice to bear on injustice. And that, too, is redress. According to Deuteronomy 15.4, God's plan was that there should be no poverty in Israel. God promised to provide enough for everyone, and he built safeguards into their economy to keep people from being permanently marginalized from that provision. The problem was, Jewish society hadn't paid much attention to God's design in, well, centuries. So some people had enriched themselves at the expense of other people. And once those rich and powerful people were running the show, they set up a system that benefited, guess who? So in first century Jewish society, there were systemic reasons why people fell into poverty and ended up stuck there. So could Zacchaeus solve these sort of historic inequities single-handedly? No way. But still, his newfound commitment to righteousness motivated him to do something. And that something was significant for him. But get this. Zacchaeus' example is not just for our entertainment. It's also for our admonition. So what does Zacchaeus' example teach us? What do we learn about redress from this story? That when we have taken something that rightfully belongs to someone else, it's not enough to just recognize that wrong or even to just apologize or to seek God's forgiveness or to confess or to promise never to do it again. We have to give it back. We have to give it back. If I steal your car, I can't just apologize and keep the car, right? As long as I'm in your car waving a happy hello as I pass your house where you're stuck without wheels, even if you try to forgive me, I'm thinking we're not really going to be reconciled. Of course, we good Christian folks are probably not into grand theft auto. Still, maybe you did just straight out take somebody's stuff. It happens. But even if not, how about that money you never paid back? Or how you shafted him or her in that divorce proceeding? Or that thing you borrowed a long time ago? Or that status or honor or opportunity that should have gone and belonged to someone else? Zacchaeus teaches us that if it's not ours, not only do we have to give it back, We have to give it back in a way that redresses not only the material loss, but that redresses the personal grievance as well. We have to give it back in a way that invites reconciliation. Now, I have to admit, we don't know what the relationship between Zacchaeus and the citizens of Jericho was like going forward. We don't know for sure if his act of redress led to reconciliation. But you've got to admit, It sure didn't hurt his chances. Some of you have some unfinished relational business out there. 
You've taken advantage of someone, and as a result, that relationship has gone cold. Maybe you've apologized, even confessed, maybe even restored some portion of what was lost. But it hasn't been enough, has it? Because things still aren't right. So you may need to sprinkle a little Zacchaeus sauce on that situation in the form of redress. As the story of Zacchaeus illustrates, there are these particular personal offenses for which we need to provide redress. But we can also see in his example that there are structural inequities that we may may need to redress, either because we are complicit in or have benefited from collective injustice. And here I'm thinking specifically about America's longstanding racial inequities. In Zacchaeus' day, the divide between rich and poor was, of course, not really his doing or not entirely his doing. He had inherited a system that would have existed regardless of his participation in it. And yet, still he somehow feels the need to redress that situation by making some significant personal sacrifices. Likewise, we white folks living today did not create the racial divide that exists in America, nor the racialized hierarchy of social well-being that accompanies it. In fact, we try quite hard often to distance ourselves from, from our obvious ancestral associations, associations by insisting with some frequency that only a small percentage of people ever actually bought or sold slaves or lynched anyone. But of course, that ignores the fact That those atrocities could only happen and happen in a legally protected environment with the complicity of essentially an entire nation. Not only that, but the benefits of this immoral institution extended far beyond the slave industry. The whole of white society profited from slavery. During that era, the vast majority of American exports, particularly cotton, were produced by slave labor. And the ripple effect from that slave production created untold jobs throughout the entire economy and enriched an entire nation by bringing in wealth from abroad. Okay, so maybe the complicity was broader than we like to admit and the benefits more widely distributed. But still, that was then and this is now. So what does yesterday have to do with us today and with redress and with Zacchaeus of all people? Well, let me ask you this. If I con my neighbor out of his life savings and I give some of that money to you, does it then become your money? Now, let's just say that the law never catches up with either one of us and we pass our ill-gotten gain on to our children. Now, whose money is it? Can you ever, in the sight of God, do enough intergenerational money laundering to erase that injustice and to make it okay for my clan and your clan to be doing quite nicely, thank you very much, while my neighbor's descendants are struggling to get by? Perhaps we are not the original perpetrators who carried out what Ta-Nehisi Coates has called the national sin of plunder. 
but we have now become the beneficiaries of that plunder. And therefore, if not the perpetrators, the perpetuators of that injustice. The median wealth of white families in America is currently 10 times that of black families. I'm not talking about a ratio of 6 to 5 or 2 to 1. 10 times. Thank God we're not experiencing that level of disparity in our own congregation or perhaps in many of the communities from which we draw here at Bridgeway, but we also know we're living in somewhat of a bubble because this is the reality writ large 10 times. This is not an accident of history, nor is it the product of white superiority. It is a legacy of racial injustice that we, the living, have embraced and preserved. Otherwise, it would not still exist. So now, like Zacchaeus, we have a choice. We can continue to perpetuate this injustice, or we can redress this injustice. We can be part of the problem or part of the solution, but we can't dodge the problem, dodge the question, by doing nothing. Because doing nothing about injustice perpetuates injustice. And when we perpetuate an injustice that also benefits us, it's kind of hard to claim that we're just disinterested do-nothings. Oh, Zacchaeus, couldn't you just have been justified without getting so gung-ho about justice? I mean, he could have been redeemed without providing redress, right? Right? I guess we could ask the rich young ruler. But more to the point, let me just ask you. If Jesus came to your house today and observed your attitude toward racial injustice and redress, what would he conclude about your spiritual state? When I began to ask myself that question, I didn't much like the answer, which has led me over the years to, to make some significant lifestyle decisions. To dedicate a portion of my retirement savings and a portion of my estate to redressing racial injustice. To dedicate several years of my life to writing a book on the subject and more recently to start a nonprofit that promotes racial justice and racial redress. Like Zacchaeus, I can't personally right all these systemic wrongs, but even as I support the broader principle of reparations, I feel an obligation to put my own money where my mouth is because I don't know when or if or how others will eventually act. And I can't wait on everybody else to do what God has called me to do. For me, this is not a political agenda. It is an ethical imperative. It is a baton passed down by Zacchaeus himself to me for my leg of the race. That's me. I can't say precisely what God is calling other white folks to do about redress. Maybe it's investing your time. Maybe it's investing your money. But it can't be nothing. 
because racial injustice is one of those offenses that requires us to go beyond apologies. Without redress, there can be no equality. And without equality, racial reconciliation remains an elusive dream. The story of Zacchaeus leaves us with two powerful examples of redress that underline Jesus' words to us. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Speaking of your heart, is God speaking to your heart today? Shining the light on some situation that requires redress? Whether we're talking about a personal relationship or a systemic injustice, redress is a powerful tool to bring justice to bear on injustice and to bring people together. The question is, will you embrace a Zacchaeus moment? If I can help you on that journey, feel free to shoot me an email at scottgarber at scottgarber.com. Or you can visit my nonprofit website at redemptiveredress.org. And Dr. Anderson always has great resources available at embracegracism.com. May God empower each of us individually and all of us together to fulfill His justice, to trust in His grace, and to be ambassadors of His reconciliation. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Remember, you can learn more about Bridgeway by visiting our website at bridgeway.cc. You can watch this sermon and all of our sermons at our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe. And you can download the sermon notes at the link in the description. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.